Hello, and welcome to our second Roundtable Faculty Dinner Discussion Series. Um, tonight's guest is Professor Priscilla Wald of the English Department. Um, she is involved with interdisciplinary research across campus. Um, her latest book has just been released. Um, it's called Contagious Cultures, Carriers, and the Outbreak Narrative, um, and that's that'll be part of her discussion tonight. Um, this student-faculty event will be available on our website in podcast form. Okay. So what I'm going to talk about is um, the images. That What I'm going to talk about is the what I call the outbreak narrative. And the outbreak narrative is a story about how um, you've, you've all been familiar. Has any of you seen the film Outbreak? Right. Okay, you have. <laughs> um, that one is, I and mean, that's where I'm getting the term and where I'm getting the idea. But... Um, it's a story of, an, of a hemorrhagic virus that emerges somewhere in the jungles, usually of Africa, and gets into the net, right, gets into the, the interconnections of our global transportation system and, and becomes a species-threatening event. And what I look at in my book is how an, a visual and verbal vocabulary of contagion arises in the science and epidemiological writings, public health writings, um, is, you know, becomes conventional, becomes something that people begin to associate with this story through um, its circulation in mass media and popular culture, and then how that affects the way that we think about global health. So I'm going to show you today that kind of process through which this story gets told, um, becomes paradigmatic, and uh, affects the way we think about emerging infections. I'm going to rely on you since you had a whole class in this. Okay, so first I'm just going to show you some of the really common visual visual uh, symbols that have become conventional, and um, the mask, obviously. And this was these were all from SARS. So most of what I'm going to be talking about was from the mid '90s, and it's focused on hemorrhagic viruses in Africa. Um, but the more recent manifestation of this story is actually SARS, mm -hmm. and that was Asia. And part of my argument is that this, there is a geography to this story and the relationship between the U.S. and Africa, and in the case of SARS, between the U.S. and Asia is really relevant to this story. It always involves a map because it's always about these geographical interconnections. And this is a, a scene from which you'll be seeing actually from the film Outbreak. So the bio, biohazard suits are a huge part of the story. This is also from Outbreak. And it's always these people, the hemorrhagic fevers, the, what is so horrifying about them is the effects on the body. Not only do you die, but you die in a spectacular way. Um, I said that, the, that there was a circulation of images. There's also a circulation of language and phrases. The idea of disease emergence. And all of this is really coming from, it, it wasn't invented in, but became part of the public consciousness in 1989, when there, um, a year after. So the hemorrhagic fevers, the, the first recorded um, cases of Ebola were 1976, but no one was really paying attention. Hemorrhagic fevers really took, uh, or not, sorry, not hemorrhagic fevers, this notion of emerging new viruses that were encountering people for the first time really uh, came to the attention of people in the U.S. and Europe and so on in, from AIDS. So at the end of a decade in which AIDS made people pay attention and made them more aware of some of the other um, 
more rare viruses that were happening in the jungles, um, there was this conference to address this problem and the idea of disease emergence, new diseases that were encountering human beings for the first time came out of this conference. The analysis of the conference was that what was causing these new um, diseases was that human beings were encountering these microbes, which already existed for the first time, because of our changes in the in our um, because of development, because of the changes in our practices of how we were living, we were um, the population was growing, we were settling new regions of the world and mining them for resources, and we were spreading out into uh, jungles and forests that we had never um, inhabited before. And so human beings were, count were encountering these microbes that were primitive, that had been there since the beginning of the earth. We were encountering them for the first time. And the story is about, or the conference was really about, how can we change the practices? How can we change the way we were living? How can we change our, you know, the terms of development and the unthinking ways we were going into these new environments um, in order, because of the danger of these diseases, which really could, like initially when HIV, I, I was, a, you know, I was very, I was an adult in New York at the time when HIV was first identified, and people really were talking as though this could be the end of the world. So the message that came out of this 1989 conference was, we really need to change the way that we're doing development, we need to change the way that we're living, but um, this, what I'm gonna show you is that the story, um, that the story that gets told becomes more of a science fiction kind of story and really works against that narrative of how we have to change our practices. Part of the story of how we have to change our practices is we can't depend on science to solve the problems for us. And what I'll show you is that the story that gets told actually says, don't worry, don't change your practices, science will solve everything. And that's the story I'm gonna show you. Um, and um, what I argue is that the people writing these non the scientists and science writers, not the fiction writers, who are trying to get this message across are not aware of how their language and their stories are undermining the message they're trying to send. And that's the interdisciplinarity, right? That I am arguing that people with my expertise in analyzing language and images and stories really have something important to tell the epidemiologists who are trying to get a different story out there and are not aware of how their own language, the conventions of speech that they draw on, are undermining their messages. So that's my, so carrier is another one of these terms, patient zero, you all know that term from HIV, hemorrhagic virus. And this is my upright clip. So I'm going to start with this and I'm going to ask you to really pay attention and tell me what you're seeing in this story. This was from 1995. You see Joshua Lederberg, the single biggest threat to man's continued dominance on the planet is the virus. That's the you know message of fear, right? That you really have to worry about and pay attention to this problem. And I'll talk in a moment about him. And I want you to really watch this scene and then tell me what you're seeing. And this is called an establishing shot and it's a conventional shot in all of these outbreak narratives that I look at that are on film, and it tells you that the thing, the, the place where we're going is really crucial to the story. 
and an establishing shot which goes from bird's eye to the ground is about the importance of this place. And this is the conventional image of Africa that's violent and chaotic and dangerous. Sounds coming from the laptop. It is, I know. The other one's not working. This, I'm going to talk about this shot. Watch this shot. It's really interesting. Okay, so you heard them promise that they were going to send help, right? And this is a mercenary camp in Zaire known for its political unrest in the mid-70s. It was during a revolution. So can you tell me just a little bit of what you saw? Well, I saw the full body medical suits and all the syringes, all syringes long needles, which are like very kind of cold, medical, scientific. Mm -hmm. and, and who is that associated with? Who was in the suits? Did you get a sense of that? The professionals. The professionals and they're Americans. So the Americans are coming in to help, and they represent science and the promise of science and the most advanced medicine in this, quote, primitive place. What else do you, did this make you think of? What other features? Oh, well, I feel like I'm cheating because I've already seen this. That's but okay. <laughs> um, the whole imagery of the mass is just like, um, it's through the Americans' eyes that we see this situation. and. Okay. Anything else? 
Well, for that mask shot, I was thinking maybe because the man is like in the mask, is saying that this could be anybody. It could also be the person inside the mask. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's this kind of anonymity mm-hmm. of that person. What's their solution? Just destroy everything. Right. And what does that tell you about the people that we're living it's worth there? Worth nothing. They're yeah, they're as Collateral Donald damage. Sutherland who's in Donald Sutherland who's in one of the uh, biocontainment suits, what he says is they're all casualties of war. We have to sacrifice them for the greater good. So there are three points in the scene in particular that are key features to this thing that I call the outbreak narrative that really got consolidated with this movie. The movie wasn't the only, I mean, there were tons of novels and nonfiction science and journalism pieces and science writing and science texts and everything that were all coming out proliferating in the 1990s following this 1989 conference in Washington. But this movie really put it in, this movie and the, the thing that precipitated this movie, which was, do you know The Hot Zone by Richard Preston? Is that a book you know? So Richard Preston is a science writer who wrote um, wrote a story, a nonfiction piece about a possible threat to the US that turned out to be okay, but it was all about the dangers of these diseases. It came out as a New Yorker article in 1992 the story was leaked to him by Joshua Letterberg, who was the guy who did the epi- epigraph, whatever it's called, to this movie, right? And Joshua Letterberg was working on this problem. He couldn't get people's attention, and he asked this science writer, who's a very sensational writer, to write a story that would scare the American public into paying attention to this problem because he wanted funding to go to this problem. So the story is all about this outbreak of this terrible um, infection, uh, hemorrhagic virus, in a lab, uh, I'm sorry, in a containment facility um, for primates in Western Virginia. And they, they didn't know whether this was going to be contagious to human beings or not, whether they had brought this kind of disease, this Ebola, hemorrhagic fever, to um, the U.S. or not. And the story, it's a really interesting, it's now a book, um, really, really interesting story. And out of that, they made this movie. Um, which doesn't follow the plot of the book at all, but the idea was born in Richard Preston, and then they made the movie, and then it became something that everybody was talking about and writing about novels, science writing, etc. So there are three things that I want you to really think about for this movie. One of them is geography, and the geography of what I call the outbreak narrative, this paradigmatic story that gets told over and over again. Um, the the uh, geography is always that the threat comes from the jungles, usually of Africa, as I say later with SARS, it's Asia, gets into the net, right, and goes all around and threat and becomes a species-threatening event. It's apocalyptic. We all might die. You know, there's no cure for this. It's a horrible death, and it could affect any of us, right? It can get into that transportation net. So that's the geography. The second part of that geography is about expertise, which you guys are really great on, and the expertise always goes in the other direction. It goes from the West to the developing world. So it goes in the other direction, right? From the developed to developing. Um, and that's this, that's the narrative of this story. So you've got the geography of it, expertise goes in one direction, the danger goes in the other. You have the terms of expertise, and you were great about noticing that's that shot I told you about to the left to the side. What we see here is 
Donald Sutherland is approaching the pile of dead bodies, and the African doctor, is, the Zaire doctor, is saying to him, um, "You know, you you saw the hor you saw this horrible thing, but those are the men in the early stages of, of the disease. Later, you know, it's going to look like this, and we prepare for something horrible." And the camera does a complete 180, complete about face, and we only see that horrible scene reflected in Donald Sutherland's mask. And I argue that that's an image of expertise. He knows how to look at this problem. We don't know how to look at this problem, we the audience. The film is going to complicate this, but that's the initial terms that are being say, set up. We have to trust the experts. This is so terrible. And that brings me to my third point, which is the idea of containment at all costs, and whose life can be sacrificed and whose can't. So what we saw is Donald Sutherland, this guy, made the decision that there was no way to help these people and it was too dangerous, we couldn't risk having this terrible disease get out into the public, and so we would just sacrifice their lives and blow them up and contain the disease in that way. And the whole film is about how this disease, 20 years later in the 90s, gets out into the, um, you know, onto American soil and affects a town in Northern California. And Donald Sutherland wants to contain the problem by blowing up that town. And everybody says, but these people are Americans, sir. You can't do that. Those lives can't be spared, uh, need to be, you know, can't be sacrificed. These lives can be sacrificed, those can't. That is part of the story that I'm telling. Whose lives can be sacrificed and whose can't. So those are the three points. And now what I'm going to do is just very quickly, because I know, you know, I, I know this should be mostly discussion. I'm going to take you through the different features that I've been talking about and show you how it moves from the science to the um, journalism and popular culture and then out into the general public. So um, I talked about the features of apocalypse, right? It's a species-threatening event. Interdependence, that's the web, the network, everything connected, and the geography of disease. Okay. So Richard Krauss, now I'm, st I'm starting with a scientist, right? Emerging Viruses came, is one of the volumes that came out in the 1989 conference. Like science, emerging viruses know no country. There are no barriers to prevent their migration across international boundaries or around the 24 time zones. So here's a scientist saying, you know, when we think about these diseases, everybody's connected. Here's Richard Preston from the hot zone, and what you're going to see is how this gets sensationalized when it gets out there. A hot virus in the rainforest lives within a 24-hour plane flight from every city on Earth. All of the Earth cities are connected by a web of airline routes. The web is a network. Once a virus hits the net, it can shoot anywhere in a day, Paris, Tokyo, New York, LA, wherever planes fly. So this is written for scientists, and now we get to the general public, and you see what's happening right, to that story. Lori Garrett in The Coming Plague. The Andromeda Strain, do you know that reference? Everyone know the reference, Andromeda Strain? Michael Crichton wrote a novel about a, um, a virus that was threatening to annihilate the world. Um, anyway, so that, that comes from that, and that was from the 1970s. The Andromeda Strain nearly surfaced in Africa in the form of Ebola virus. Megacities were arising in the developing world, 
creating niches from which virtually anything might arise. Rainforests were being destroyed, forcing disease-carrying animals and insects into areas of human habitation and raising the very real possibility that lethal, mysterious microbes would, for the first time, infect humanity on a large scale and imperil the survival of the human race. Now this book, The Coming Plague, is one of the main, these are the two um, science journalism books that brought this problem to the um, attention of the American public. And 1995 was also the year that the movie came out. So you see how there was this constellation, this story is like bombarding the American public. And what I'm pointing out, here's that geography thing again, nearly surfaced in Africa, the Andromeda strain in the form of Ebola virus. Well, one of the um, diseases she writes about is hantavirus, um, which had you know surfaced in New Mexico. And another one she writes about is Lyme disease, which surfaced in Connecticut, but you would never hear Connecticut or New Mexico talked about as you know a place where virtually anything might arise, right? So there are certain um, vocabularies that are reserved for certain places that don't, even though the problem is in other places, and even though that shows that the problem doesn't always start in Africa, it might start anywhere, right? That's not the story that gets out with these um, with these uh, books. One of the features of the story is human being versus microbes. So remember I said that the analysis was that this is really about an environmental problem that human beings are creating. But when, it, when microbes get talked about, scientists can't seem to resist animating the microbe. And then journalists pick that up and novelists really go, uh, uh, really take it to an extreme as we'll be seeing. So here's, and I, I really will be quick with this. So here's Joshua Letterberg, that guy you already saw. He's one of the scientists. Um, well, actually, let me skip him. Go to uh, Carl Johnson, who's a scientist quoted in Richard Preston, The Hot Zone. A virus that reduces us um, by some percent, by 30%, by 90%, can be useful to a species by thinning it out. So actually, sorry, that was not illustrating this point so much as really um, setting up the way that in a dispassionate way, Scientists, if they're thinking on the level of species and population, can talk about this and what difference it makes when we're looking at it as human beings. So, now let me move to this point. Richard Krauss, um, The Origins of Plagues, Old and New. He's one of the scientists. This is in uh, one of the books that also came out of the 1989 conference. Microbes are not idle bystanders, waiting for new opportunities offered by human mobility, ignorance, or neglect. Microbes possess remarkable genetic versatility that enables them to develop new pathogenic vigor, to escape population immunity by acquiring new antigens, and to develop antibiotic resistance. They are more than simple opportunists. They have also been great innovators. So what's happening here is that the microbes are starting to get animated. In other words, they're starting to have like human motivations, rather than just being things that we encounter in a chance way. Laura Garrett in The Coming Plague. Microbes have the ability, like they're conscious almost, to outwit or manipulate the one microbial sensing system Homo sapiens possess, or immune systems. And then from Outbreak, Sam Daniels, you have to love its simplicity. It's one billionth our size and it's beating us. So you see that there's this like human being versus microbe thing that's getting set up. And then Richard Preston in the hot zone, viruses are molecular sharks, a motive without a mind compact, hard, logical, totally selfish. The virus is dedicated, like conscious, 
to making copies of itself, which it can do on occasion with gradient speed, the prime directive is to replicate. And so what you're seeing here is that the virus begins to take on human motivation, okay? And I want to remind you throughout that my argument is, you know, uh, someone not thinking in literary critical terms would say, oh, come on, these are just metaphors. What difference does it make? And what I'm going to show you is what difference it makes. That's what I'm leading up to. Okay, so you see my first point that the microbes take on these human forms and they're kind of at war with human beings. Um, these are just more the same. Microbes are also like these mystifying, mythical things. Carl Johnson, a scientist quoted in Richard Preston's Hot Zone, isn't it true that if you stare into the eyes of a cobra, the fear has another side to it. The fear is lessened as you begin to see the essence of the beauty. Looking at Ebola under an electron microscope is like looking at a gorgeously wrought ice castle. The thing is so cold, so totally pure. And Tom Geisbert, another scientist, one of the researchers in this primate facility, looking into the electron microscope, he saw white cobras tangled among themselves like the hair of Medusa. They were the face of nature herself, the obscene goddess revealed naked. This life form thing was breathtakingly beautiful. As he stared at it, he found himself being pulled out of the human world into a world where moral boundaries blur and finally dissolve completely. He was lost in wonder and admiration, even though he knew that he was the prey. So the microbes become not only animated, but like figures of mystique and mystery. And the next step is, that the earth itself, the microbes become the expression of the earth itself as the earth becomes a character in this drama that I'm calling the outbreak narrative. Our earth, Carl Johnson, this is the scientist talking, our earth is in fact a progressively immunocompromised ecosystem. And then Richard Preston picks this up. The earth is mounting an immune response, so it's, it's conscious of what it's doing against the human species. So that's what the virus is. It's an expression of something that the Earth is intentionally doing, and the microbes are the agents doing this for the Earth, Gaia. It is beginning to react to the human parasite, the flooding infection of people, the dead spots of concrete all over the planet, the cancerous rot outs in Europe, Japan, and the US, thick with replicating primates, the colonies enlarging and spreading and threatening to shock the biosphere with mass extinctions. The biosphere may not like the idea of five million humans, or perhaps the human species is just so much meat that cannot defend itself against a life form that might want to consume it. The Earth's immune system, so to speak, has recognized the presence of the human species and is starting to kick in. So now we have, you see what's building, right? We have a new interpretation. This isn't just the chance encounter of human being and microbe. This is a willful, conscious decision, in a sense, on the part of the Earth to send forth these microbes and get rid of that human parasite. And now we get into the novels. The novelists love this. We don't belong here. We're the disease here. We're the virus. The forest knows that, and it wants to destroy us. And Peter Marek, who's a CDC researcher in Chuck Hogan's The Blood Artist, Earth is a cell we are infecting, and nature is the Earth's immune system, just now sensing the threat of our encroachment and arming itself to fight back. Macro versus micro, viruses are the Earth's white blood cells. We are the Earth's disease. 
And part of my argument here is that what starts to happen when we get to the novel, novels, a novelist wants to tell a dramatic story. A novelist isn't interested, right, in, in informing the public. A, no, a novelist wants to create drama. And what these novelists do, and the reason I think it's important to read these in order to know what we're thinking, is they pick up on the metaphors that the scientists are using. They pick up on this formulation and they turn it into a drama. So through the novels, what you can see is the assumptions that are embedded in the science magnified, writ large, amplified. You can see much more clearly the subtle story that the scientists are telling, and I would argue don't, don't recognize that they're telling because they're not thinking about their use of language. They're just picking up the conventions that have started to circulate, sometimes borrowing them from the movies or the journalists or the novelists, right? They're, they're telling their own story, but they're not realizing the effect. One of the other features of this story, remember I said that the message from the 1989 conference was science, you can't rely on science to solve the problem. You have to change your habits and your practices. But the story, remember I said, tells something different. And in these novels, the scientist is the hero, and the, the virus usually becomes animated and literally takes human form. So again, the, the more dramatic manifestation of what you saw in the science, right? And suddenly, it's a battle between scientific experts, like the ones you guys identified, and this animated virus. And they're doing battle over the fate of the human species. And it becomes, that's the drama of these novels. And again, what the novels are doing are extracting the implications <coughs> that are coming out of the science and the journalism. Um, so I'll just read one of these. Actually, I, they're both cool. The character of a virus endowed with human traits? Easy. We're talking about a being uninhibited by any obligations, social or moral. And what happens in this novel is a, a guy gets infected, an environmentalist gets infected by the virus, and the virus literally takes over his body and uses it. And the virus speaks through him and you know, tries to kill, you know, go, goes on a homicidal rampage through the agency of this body that it's taken over. Uh, combine the worst elements of a serial murderer, a rapist, an impulsive arsonist, hyper-aggressive, hypersexual, homicidal, egocentric, pathological, an unqualified sociopath, the ultimate deviant terrorist mentality, all zero, and they call this guy patient zero, wants to do is infect, infect, infect. And now we see the implications. The threat of a mutant virus gifted with human intellect and cunning posed hazards exceeding Merrick's worst imaginings. But all he envisioned was its one great advantage. Epidemic control had never been simpler. Zero was like a tumor Merrick could go in and surgically remove. So remember I said they weren't supposed to rely on science to solve their problems? Well, what is he saying here? Science can take care of it. When we've concentrated the virus into this recognizable enemy that we can predict and understand because it thinks basically like us, then we can go in like it's a cancer and take and have science solve it and root it out. And what do we not have to do? We don't have to change any of our practices. And you saw how this story evolved. So that's the outline of the story that I am calling the outbreak narrative. And you know, I'm, one novel is not evidence. There are scores of novels that tell the same, and films that tell the same story over and over and over again. Now I, what I want you to do is, having 
heard my outline of how this story works, here is a, um, a, a spread from SARS, okay? And this, these two photographs were on, a, on effacing pages of a Newsweek, an issue of Newsweek from May 5th, 2003, that was talking about the SARS virus. So now we're back to journalism. This isn't a novel, right? And here's how they were telling the story of SARS. They, this is exactly how it appeared in the, in the journal with this caption underneath. And since you couldn't read it, I put it on top. So here it is. Fear of SARS prompts a Lufthansa crew to wear masks in the Hong Kong airport. The virus may have been born on a farm like the one above in Guangzhou, China, where animals and people live close together. So that's the story that is explaining what we're seeing in this photograph. I want you guys to now tell me how you would read this photograph. What story is being told here about SARS and how it works? Targets uncivilized cultures, because the idea of animals and people living together, it's a mark of civilization. To have those separate, we're no longer nomadic people. We're supposed to be settled, technologically advanced. And now we've taken like a step backwards in barbaric practice. Mm -hmm. So we see this kind of, and in fact, in the let me let me uh, help you out here and give you a little more of the narrative because that's only fair since I have it right. Um, this is in the same issue, right? This is the the narrative part of the pictures you just saw. The novel coronavirus that causes the syndrome emerged from Guangdong, the same Chinese province that delivers new flu viruses to the world most years. Pigs, ducks, chickens, and people live cheek by jowl on the district's primitive farms, exchanging flu and cold germs so rapidly that a single pig can easily incubate human and avian viruses simultaneously. The dual infections can generate hybrids that escape antibodies aimed at the originals, setting off a whole new chain of human infection. The clincher is that these farms sit just a few miles from Guangzhou, a teeming city that mixes people, animals, and microbes from the countryside with travelers from around the world. You could hardly design a better system for turning small outbreaks into big ones. So there's that primitive farm, right, that Angela identified. This is like some primitive practice. It's not yet civilized. And here it is in close proximity to Guangzhou, okay? What else do you see? On the left, you see like the civilized people in an airport carrying bags, showing that they're about to travel somewhere and that they will carry the virus from that primitive setting into, I guess, their developed world. Exactly. So here's the interconnection of that world. Does anyone see the, the kind of um, jump that's being made there? Where is this? Where's this airport? Hong Kong Airport. And where's this? But this looks like they're coming right out of this into the airport. These are two different countries, right? Well, not anymore, but there's a, there's a lot of water between them, right? Uh -huh. So the way this looks is it's though the airport, the folks you know, flying are coming right out of this frame and, and going out exactly to infect us all. So there it goes from the primitive world um, into the net out to infect all of us. What's wrong with this picture? I'm just really surprised that there's so much uncertainty behind these pictures because they're saying, well, there could have been a farm like this one, but they didn't really know where it actually came from. Exactly. And notice the virus may have been born on a farm like the one above, exactly. But suddenly, in the way that they tell this whoops, story, right, it emerged from there 
and pigs, ducks, chicken, people living cheek by jowl on the district's primitive farms exchanging food and culture so rapidly, etc. And um, the clincher is these farms sit just a few miles from Guangzhou. So it's not could have been, it's not may have, it suddenly becomes what happened. And pictures in particular, photographs, don't, are not maybe. Photographs tell you what is, right? So it really is working against that the caption may have been becomes this is what happened. This is the picture of what happened. And once again, we have that, ex that uh, disease going that way. The rest of the article talks about how it was okay, it was contained. Why? Because of science and technology emanating from the developed countries, particularly from the US. And therefore, scientists with their expertise were able to use their technology and were also interconnected communicatively right on the web. So we could get on that and we could, you know, that expertise could flow back in the other way and contain that virus. So the threat is coming from here and the, um, and the solution is coming from in the other direction. Now, one of the things that's really wrong about this is this is a picture not of primitivism. This isn't people who are living cheek by jowl with their animals because they don't know any better. This is a picture of what? Why are people living cheek by jowl with their animals? What's causing people to live like that? Do you think they're choosing to? Poverty. So what we have with the word primitive is a temporal story, right? These people are living in the past, and they're living close to the modernity, close to people living in the present. And that's the danger. If only these people would stop living in the past and you know, if only we could, you know, solve this with modernity and bring everybody up to, you know, bring everybody into the present, when in fact, this is not a problem of primitivism, this is a problem of poverty. And that is the story that is not getting told, right? That the reason that a farm like this, and the science is accurate, right? The reason a farm like this is breeding this problem is allowing the virus to mutate in this way, avian flu, right, to mutate in this way, is that they are living in close proximity. They're living in this proximity because of poverty. But are we addressing the poverty? No. This story is telling us to put more money into the science and address the problem that way. Now, I am not saying we shouldn't put the money into the science. I'm not saying it's not, a, you know, we should be developing vaccines. We should be, you know, thinking about we have to have quarantine measures and all, all those things are true. But why not anticipate the problem, as Paul Farmer tells us to do, and address the real cause, which is poverty? Why? Because we're not seeing the cause as poverty. We're seeing the cause as something else. And the way we're telling this story is, work, do you see how it's working against the real analysis of the problem and the solution that the 1989 conference told us, which is you have to change your development practices. You have to stop. You have to think about the consequences of spreading out, you know, having human populations go, you know, into the forests and, and so forth and so on. Um, the development practices that are reproducing the poverty in the developing nations, those are the practices that have to change. But we don't even see that because of the story that's being told. And um, let me just go, I'm concluding. Just again, look at these conventions. Look at how SARS got talked about. The, uh, um, the monster at our door, 
making the world a global village, or more precisely, a global barnyard, the not-so-great wall of China, Asia today, the perfect incubator, nature's bioterrorist. If you take a plane ride to Paris, you may be taking an epidemic along with you. So the problem is the, the microbe is a monster. The problem is that there are these countries that are global barnyards that really need to come into the present. The problem is over there, threatening us here. The problem isn't how the United States and other developed nations are recreating, reproducing this poverty through our development practices. That's the story that's not getting told. And here is Paul Farmer telling us diseases themselves make a preferential option for the poor. Um, oops. Let me uh, conclude by just giving you one example of this story, and then I will be silent, or not entirely silent, but get, get questions. And that is, um, Paul Farmer explains how, uh, how, this, how development from the West, from the US, creates this problem. And he tells the story of the Pellegree Dam. Have any of you read Paul Farmer? Yes. Do you know, you know who he is? You all know who he is? You, you not really. Um, you want to tell her who Paul Farmer is? Paul Farmer is a um, graduate from a couple years back. And he now works More than a couple years. He's my age, years. year younger. Um, now he works in like um, global health. He does not work in Russia and I think Latin America. Um, he, I know he, in Russia he combat tuberculosis. And just combats like these diseases in developed countries. And he started with Haiti. And his whole argument is that disease comes from poverty. Well, I, I erased that slide. But disease comes from poverty. And that first you have to address the conditions of poverty before you can even begin to think about addressing you know, these issues of global health. And the story he tells about the way that development creates these problems is, tells the story of the Pellegre Dam in Haiti. And this was, um, there were a group of people, there were people living in the region where he later would build his clinic called the Cache, making a subsistence living. They were farmers, they were doing well, they were thriving, everything was fine and, you know, whatever, I mean, um, but they were, you know, they were living decent lives. And the U.S., um, in uh, collaboration with the Haitian elite in Port-au-Prince, built a dam that would be good for U.S. industries in Haiti, as well as the Haitian elite living in Port-au-Prince, so it'd be good for Port-au-Prince. They built a dam that ended up flooding the <coughs> farmlands of the Cache, and this is called the Pellegre Dam. And the people who were living there, all of their farms were destroyed, their houses were destroyed. It's all underwater now because of this dam. So they all had to move up into the mountains where the land wasn't arable. And they became impoverished as a result of this. They could not make a living on the land as they were used to doing. It is now a region that is suffused with disease, one of the highest populations with AIDS, with multi-drug resistant TB, with all of these problems and everybody points to it and says, look, the problems are coming from there and they're threatening all of us. And Paul Farmer's argument is if you tell that story differently, you'll see that the, pro the, the origination of those problems were with this U.S.-Haitian elite alliance that built this dam without regard to the people living there and have created the poverty that have produced disease, violence, and crime. And so we can't start the problem now with disease, violence, and crime. We have to tell the story starting at an earlier time and locate it in that decision to build the dam and to produce the conditions of poverty that in turn produced 
this store, this these conditions. And so what I'm saying is that you know what I look at in my book is how this story gets told through language and images and um, narratives that people aren't even aware they're producing that ends up telling a very different story from the one that needs to be told if we are going to address the problems in the way that Paul Farmer, and I agree with him, um, wants us to do. So that's it. And uh, let's, let's do questions and talk about whatever, interdisciplinarity or whatever you want to talk about. In fact, I'll sit down if that's OK. Just speak. OK. <laughs> um, I'm taking another course on the history of human trafficking and talking about the ethics of journalism and case studies and the whole purpose of a case study is not to be objective. And as much as I love Paul Farmer, I was curious as to how you thought of how Paul Farmer has taken it upon himself to like represent the stories and I know he's trying to do it in a very unbiased way, but Oh no, I don't think he's trying to be unbiased at all. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and I don't think he should I mean, I don't know that there is such a I don't you know my, my discipline doesn't really believe in unbias. Like, we all have biases we're not even aware of. What Paul Farmer is doing with his case studies is producing an analysis of the problem, right? And he wants us to see that we really need to address poverty, that it's more economically feasible in the long run, you know, to address these conditions now mm -hmm. than when everybody is, you know, getting sick and dying, right? So he wants us to address the conditions now um, the conditions of poverty and to work for um, a, a more even distribution of resources and uh, more adequate health care universally. Mm -hmm. And this came out of something in the late 1970s that was called the Alma-Ata Declaration. We did it in class, if you remember. And the Alma-Ata, and this is, Laura Garrett writes about it as well, the Alma-Ata Declaration was that, this was in 1978, and the, they had, I think, 72, I think it was 72 nations signed it. It was um, generated by China, Tanzania, and a few other countries. And um, what they said is, we need to commit ourselves as a world to universal access to health care. This should be a primary goal of every nation in the world. And 72 nations signed on to this, a commitment to universal access to health care. And that this was a human right. Health care was a human right. Paul Farmer is coming out of that philosophy and believes that passionately, and again, I'm with him, I do too. So that the stories that he's telling in the case studies are his analysis of why we have not achieved, they, they said by the year 2000, we would achieve these goals. Well, we're in 2008, we're not even close. And what Paul Farmer is saying is, that's where funding should be going, that's where our energy should be going. We should simply understand that all human beings are entitled to good health and adequate health care as a right. It should not be a privilege, it should be a right. And we should commit ourselves to that, and global health should come from that assumption. And his argument is, with stories like the one that, I'm, that I've been showing you, that those are different analyses. Like, every story is an analysis of the problem. The one that I showed you said that the problem comes from these primitive people who haven't come into modernity, these dangerous continents that are now connected to all of us because of the transportation net, right? And that we need to change them, and they need to address this problem, or we need to cordon them off in some way, right? Um, 
that's one thing. And then the second thing it's saying is their populations are expendable. And the third thing it's saying is when the problem gets out into the developed world, science will solve it. And those are the three points that really work against the story that Paul Farmer is trying to tell, the story in a slightly different story that the 1989 convention was trying to tell, and the story that I'm trying to tell. That we need to think about this problem not only in terms of health, but in terms of global poverty, in terms of human rights, and, and so on. Thank you. <laughs> and you were talking about this earlier, and it seems like, like in the modern era with all the technology that we have and the availability of information, it seems like people are such flooded with information that it's very hard for someone to understand all the facts. And the things that people do understand, the thing that catches their attention, are things that are very sensationalist, like yes. war, famine, disease, pestilence. These couple of things, these are the people that draw attention. And these are, people that, these are things that people concentrate on. And you have these problems that Paul Farmer talks about, that you talk about, but that these aren't as eye-catching or eye-opening as the stories that these novels, these novels tell. Absolutely. So like, how, how would you communicate this problem to the general public? That's a great question, and it has actually a lot of different parts. So first of all, there's the question of the sensationalism. And um, people like Joshua Letterberg asked someone like um, Richard Preston to write a sensational story precisely because he wanted to catch people's attention for the reason that you said. He wanted the funding to go to this problem. You know, and, and I don't think that's wrong. I think that you have to do some of that, right? You have to publicize a problem. Um, the, the question is how that story then grows and kind of gets out of control and you know, what, what the terms of that sensation are. So the first way I would answer that question is you know, I'm not against making it sensational, but I would say to journalists, be really careful how you're telling that story because if you're telling the story of like, you know, science versus this monstrous virus, you know, or you know these primitive practices in the third world versus, and I'm using third world in quotations, developing nations, etc., um, versus the you know solution over here, you're you're telling a story that is making the problem as I see it, as Paul Farmer sees it, as Amartya Sen sees it, worse and worse, right? So that's you know that's um, I would say that, that you can sensationalize but still be very careful about how you tell that story, right? And um, another reason that people don't really want to hear the Paul Farmer story is it seems so overwhelming. You know, the problem of poverty is so huge and how do you begin to address a problem like that? And Paul Farmer's point is, you know, that's a cop-out. If you say this problem is too big even to begin to deal with, then you're going to keep making the problem bigger and bigger and bigger. And he says, you know, here, here's how you deal with it. You build a state-of-the-art clinic in Haiti, and you begin to deliver health care. And one of the things that he, both he and Amartya Sen, who's an economist, um, both of them argue is that, in fact, if you think about the economics of this, you can do, if you redistribute resources, you can actually go a lot farther towards addressing that problem than if you pour money into, say, a vaccine that doesn't work or something like that, right? So, so you can, the, the problem, if you think about it in, a, in smaller chunks, let's say, the problem doesn't seem so overwhelming. And in fact, if you put 
the expenditure that you would need to make to begin at least to increase access to health care, to make populations healthier so that when the when the virus hits, it won't spread as quickly, for instance, right? If a population is healthier now, it's actually going to cost less than if you have to, you know, do all these quarantine measures and, you know, try to get treatments produced and all of that later on. And it's not one or the other, it's both. But what both Paul Farmer and Amartya Sen argue is it is not economically unfeasible, or rather it is economically feasible to begin now at whatever level you can to address some of these issues of poverty and health. Does that answer? Yeah. So, not really? No, it does. No. <laughs> so, about the diseases then, like what, our way of containing the threat, like making it tangible or less pervasive? And the disease? Well, you said that the, the, um, the problem of poverty is something that it's too big for us to grasp. Yeah. So we localize it in something like disease. Yes. Thank you. Yes. We can take out the interest or whatever. Yeah. And you and it can be contained, right? If if you think about um, and one of the things that I actually argue in the book is that HIV, for instance, which is an absolute global disease, right? A global epidemic, um, pandemic, HIV is is something that really is out of control, right? So these stories are about these more sensational viruses, these hemorrhagic viruses that are more immediately dramatic, right? But also <coughs> limited, precisely because they have such a large and fast kill rate. They don't spread as quickly, etc. And so there is this reassurance that oh, science can contain it, right? That we can, you know, we can bomb these villages or cordon them off or whatever. It's, if it gets out, it will be disastrous, but the story always ends with containment, these, these stories I'm talking about. It ends with the threat, I mean, it talks about the threat of their getting out, but it ends with the fact of containment, whereas the reality of something like HIV is very different. So it's not just disease is easier to conceptualize than poverty, but these specific, particularly hemorrhagic, SARS is something different, but the hemorrhagic viruses are something that can be contained, and so it's easier to think about solutions to them than solutions to global poverty. Right. I remember like seeing videos of the Ebola virus and thinking, "Ooh, that's disgusting," but not being as terrified of it as when like, the SARS scare came up. Exactly. Exactly. And the reason that we can talk about SARS that way is that it was contained. By by the time that that journal article came out, SARS was already under control. Like the Amy. Avian flu is the scary one, right? Because who knows? And we have these like scare stories. Ooh, who knows? But, um, but again, we're not addressing. You know, think about if we really had an avian flu epidemic, how fast that would move through impoverished communities, right? Where people are already malnourished, already you know inadequate housing, exposed to the cold, etc., and where they don't have the resistance, it's going to move that much more quickly. And when it moves through those populations, it's probably going to amplify, right, and become more and more dangerous. So in fact, it's in our interest to address that kind of problem before it happens. That's one argument. But again, the argument that, again, I want to make and Paul Farmer wants to make is even, you know, that's, that's still an instrumental argument. The think about just being in those people's place, right? Wouldn't you want 
why why should some people live in that in those conditions and other people not when if we redistributed and I don't mean to make it be simple I'm saying if we even started a conversation about redistributing resources we could begin you know to be more just let alone more wise right just going back to the avian flu, like when I read the newspapers and online and whatnot, it seems like the governmental response towards avian flu is different from that to AIDS. Like I read the Asian governments address avian flu by by banning the wet markets where people sell live birds to people. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of address these these kind of behavioral practices and introduce new, more hygienic sounder practices to the impoverished people. I think this is a kind of a departure from what people government said in the past in which they just contained the problem. Yes. I think this is kind of a way of addressing the causes. I you know, I hope so. I mean, of course avian flu is a really different kind of problem from HIV AIDS, right? So you can't you there were things that, that got banned I mean, you know, in New York City people tried, for instance, um, one one thing people tried was distributing clean needles so that addicts wouldn't reuse the same needles and spread HIV that way, but you can't, you cannot regulate, sexuality, you know, sex was such an important way that AIDS was spreading, you know, HIV was spreading, that you can't regulate sexuality in a way that you can regulate a market. So part of the difference is that you have a different disease that is spread in different ways. And um, you can tell people that during the course, you know, let's say an there were an outbreak of an epidemic, like during polio outbreaks, the government, I mean, it became illegal to have, um, what's the word I want, like uh, group meetings, you know, to have a lot of people meeting in one place because it was spread by droplets. And an avian flu outbreak, there might be a banning of like sports events and, you know, things where people gathered in crowds and where um, things were more likely to spread. HIV is spread in a very different way. And so you cannot regulate the practices. I mean, how can you regulate the practices of addicts when they do what they do? You know, already what they're doing is, quote, illegal. So they're already practicing the thing that is putting them in danger, not in public, right? And certainly sex is not something that's happening in public. And so it's much harder to regulate that behavior. And in fact, in the early days, um, of the epidemic in San Francisco, for example, there was a whole debate about closing the bathhouses, and you know there was an outcry against because then they were um, restricting people's way of living, which is very well. I suppose that would be analogous to um, changing market practices, but you know again, since a market is happening out in public, it's a lot easier to regulate what happens there. So, do I see it as an actual? How much, that, how much it represented a policy change and how much it was a factor of a different kind of disease that spread differently, you know, I can't, I can't. Those are both factors. But I do think there's an effort to promote public awareness more quickly than it was with AIDS. One of the things Reagan was criticized for, you know, Reagan prevented that from happening and wouldn't speak about it publicly. 
Oh, kind of going off of um, the narrative surrounding um, HIV/AIDS, like in the very initial days, it's almost a fascination with like gay culture and almost an over, like almost pornographic descriptions, like whole sensationalistic portrayal of sex and things like that. And then slowly, of noticing like, at least in my research, at least for Wiser, it's become more of a young women and young girls who are victimized by you know these men, these demonic men who are lustful, almost perpetuating like African stereotypes at the same time. Um, I don't know, like, uh, in a lot of his narratives, I don't know how to deal with, it's a, with men. Like, because men are a very important part of the equation. You can't remove them completely because it's patriarchal society. I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's sort of a question about, like, how do you, how can we best um, formulate a narrative that is not completely gender discriminatory either way? Ah. Gender neutral. Like, are you are you suggesting that women are like the locus? No, of no, no, not at all. But I also feel like yeah, well, just the not women, but the men. And this is also not. You're to saying say all the that. blame is put on the men. Yeah, um, but not that I want any blame put on the women. But I don't know. But what if we remove the whole question of blame of gender? Well, how how would that? Yeah. I mean, so like with with HIV. Um, one of the, what I was starting to say earlier was, um, or the story I was starting to tell is, it was one of the things that is responsible for the spread of HIV, the rapid spread of HIV in the US and elsewhere, was um, that there was a real, um, people were really slow, public relations campaigns were very slow, and the message about the disease didn't get out very fast because again it was in certain communities right. there was blame put on those those particular people it wasn't seen as a disease that most people had to worry about in the meantime it was completely spreading everywhere right yeah. but no one was willing to tell that story and rather than stigmatize any particular population stigmatizing is part to me of, of a dangerous story because what you try to do is you say oh it's going to be this population and we'll cordon them off and then we won't have to worry about this problem, um, to get information out that doesn't stigmatize anybody, I mean, this is, you know, a pipe dream, but, you know, would that, right, so I'm saying in, in an ideal way, get information out that doesn't stigmatize anybody, but that gets people information, and that encourages people to be responsible, you know, for their behavior, to, you know, to um, uh, seek help if they're sick, and if they're stigmatized, they're much less likely to see seek help. Right, um, so those are those are some of the ways I guess that I would say that rather than tell the story about salacious men or you know conniving women or whatever, to tell the story about illness, this disease, how it's spread, and what people can do and where they can seek help, and then when they seek help, to do their best you know to have have as many um, practices in place that will address the problem without stigmatizing those populations. And again, you know, that's an in, in an ideal world, but I'm talking about things we can strive for. Okay. You know, the same with the addressing poverty. I'm not saying we can turn around and start doing it tomorrow, but it's something we can strive for and we can at least begin to talk about and work towards. Um, again, I want to stress that what I'm looking at is how we analyze the problem and how important the terms of our analysis are to the way that we can think about addressing it. 
we can't even think about addressing the problem if we haven't identified where it's coming from. So stigma is part of the problem, which I think is yeah. what you're saying. Um, with all your concerns about the way people use language and metaphor to convey these, uh, these events to the general public, do you find it difficult to reach across to um, specialists like economists or global health experts to try and like to get them to change the way they use metaphor? So as absolutely, I was hoping someone <laughs> would raise this. Absolutely, and there's here's the interdisciplinary part, right? How do you talk across a discipline? So I'm trained in my discipline to analyze language, to analyze stories, and to see that they have an impact on how we think, right? And that's the leap that people who don't, you know, who aren't trained in this way find very difficult to make. You know, they'll say, what difference does it make if I say the term microbial warfare or if I, you know, if I don't? And so what, what I'm trying to say is that how, so here are these people like Lori Garrett, she's a great example, she's a great journalist, she's done a wonderful book, and she's trying to get the message across that we need to think in more global terms, we need to think about poverty, we need to think about um, you know, uh, changing our habits and practices and the way we think about the environment and all of these things. But the story she ends up telling gets caught up in this narrative of it's us against monstrous microbes, um, it's you know an apocalyptic battle, it's kind of mythic, right, in this way, and the scientist heroes really will come and solve the problem. So I feel like if I can show people how her the message that actually comes across in her book and how it undermines the story she wishes or tries to be telling, then I can, that I can show how important the way we're thinking about a problem is to how we address the problem. But your question is how, how to do that, right? And my, my answer is, well, what I've tried to do is, you know, I've tried to um, present my argument in a way that's going to, you know, muster evidence and be convincing for people who aren't already in my field, who don't already think in the terms that I think. And I try to say when I talk across a discipline, you know, you have evidence in your field and you, when you make an argument, you have things that you've learned, um, how, do I, how do I explain this better? Um, every field, every discipline has uh, a way has evidence that is persuasive in that discipline, right? Whether it's statistics are your evidence, or um, you know, if if you're a scientist, you know, empirical research, and your you your bring lab together, experiments. The sum is more than the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Yes. Like and so what I what I try to do is show how what constitutes evidence in my discipline. And what I try to show is how many examples, you know, my book is like filled with um, example after example after example of um, how this, these conventions that are being, you know, circulated, and then I show the policies and the way that people who make these policies are talking about the problem, and I offer this counter story. And, you know, 
I don't know how convincing it's going to be. I can only hope and, you know, send my little, my little message into the world and hope that somebody hears it and, you know, thinks, thinks in different ways or begins to think in different ways about the problem. That's my hope. My hope is that people will, will take seriously my injunction to think in a different way about this problem. And, and we'll maybe see why it's so hard to think in a different way about the problem. If you're using certain conventions and language and metaphors and images, it's really hard to think through them to another way of telling that story, which goes back to the question that he was asking. How do you tell a different kind of story? Does that make sense? I mean, I feel like I went over a lot of stuff very, very quickly. Did, did it make sense or, or do you feel sort of a bit. oh it is sorry it's sinking in thank you so much thank it you really, it really wait I, I forgot but what, what inspired you were you just watching Outbreak one day and was like hmm let's write a book about it um no I actually there were two things um I had finished writing a book that was very very different but one of the things in my other book was about immigrants and I had typhoid been, Mary typhoid Mary and I had been very interested in the ways that immigrants got stigmatized through medical, you know, through their association with disease. So I began to do research on Typhoid Mary and the early years of bacteriology and how Typhoid Mary became the symbol mm -hmm. of the carrier and the danger of disease and how that got associated with, you know, a female immigrant and domestic servant. She was an Irish immigrant. Um, at the, and, and this was in the mid-90s, it was at the same time that Outbreak had just come out. So I thought, wait, I see certain like similarities between this story and that story, and what's going on here? And that's how I began this investigation. Cool. Right. Thank, well, you. thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.